0: Amen. We're going to have our little ones heading off to to kids' church and nursery. and Some of you adults want to go, you'll have to sign up back there. And uh, and you can go. I can't promise how it will go in here today, but I know it's going to be exciting over there. Um, The text we're going to be in today, we've taken an opportunity between... um, between last week where we wrapped up the uh, series through the book of Acts we'd spent um, we counted it was forty some odd weeks I forget um, that it took us to journey through the entire book of Acts we started at the first of the year and we wrapped that up last week um, just a really uh, cool time going through the book of Acts and it was kind of intimidating a little bit and you heard us saying that a little bit up here uh, about the, the repetition that we saw through the book of Acts. You'd see Paul and them move into one place and then they would do the same thing. They would go find a location. Uh, usually they would start with a Jewish, po- uh, Jewish uh, audience and begin preaching the gospel and then move into the Gentile territory and the same sermon was being preached and they would do the same thing in the next town and you, people would try to take them out and they would be, be cast to the next town and just over and over and over and so it was almost like man, you know, our church is gonna get bored hearing this over and over and over and over, but as we begin to you know continue to look at that, it was just uh, it was really confronting that this is the, that, you know, when you want someone to get something, you repeat it to them over and over and over. And so I think it's just God's way of encouraging us with the gospel, encouraging us that this is what it looks like to do uh, Christianity. This, was, this is what real life uh, following Jesus looks like. So that was good. Um, and next week we're going to start our Advent series. This is kind of a special time for our church every year where we, uh, we just kind of journey into the Christmas season. Uh, with this anticipation and this expectation um, of of the coming of Jesus, and just remembering all that uh, those uh, you know thousands of years ago, how this anticipation was there, this coming Messiah that everyone longed for. Um, and here we are uh, looking forward to this, this next Advent where Christ would come. And so it's that moment where we sit in anticipation and hope and, and assurance knowing that, that because of the resurrection that Christ is coming for us. And so we're going to start that next week and we'll be the next four weeks journeying towards Christmas with that. And so we had this one moment uh, between last week and next week where we, just, uh, we get to really just kind of do a one-off sermon, a, a message. And so um, we're going to be in in, uh, chap- uh, Luke chapter seven uh, this morning, and it's really kind of uh, interesting that we just looked at forty some odd weeks of Luke's writings, and here we are going back to some more of Luke's writings. Uh, but it's just it's it's interesting. I, I when I get to this this passage that we're going to be in this morning, um, many of you have heard the uh, the story. <laughs> Of our family vacation to the Grand Canyon, I shared before how it was kind of a treacherous journey to the Grand Canyon. It took us several days to get there, and on the way there, we handed a stomach virus off to each person in the car on the way to the Grand Canyon. And so, anytime we think about that trip, anytime we think about the Grand Canyon, we all just kind of get sick to our stomach just thinking about that that, that season. Where man, it was just it was a miserable time there. But the reality is when we got there, finally everyone had kind of handed off the stomach virus and recovered by the time we made it to the Grand Canyon. And there was just this moment I can remember where we finally made it up to the rim of the canyon, and, and for the first time you just kind of stepped out over the edge. And when you got there, just you couldn't say anything. It's almost like you just kind of, your, your thoughts were arrested, your speech was just arrested, and you were just sitting there. And many of you, if you've gone to the Grand Canyon, you've experienced something like this where it's like... You just stood there in awe just looking at this. And when I look at this passage, I kind of get that same feeling where I'm just kind of shut down. I don't just it's, it's beautiful to see what Jesus does in our text this morning. And it just it, it should kind of strike us that way just to shut us down to to make us speechless almost to see how Jesus um, deals with people, who he is. And so um, we're going to be um, looking at, at a particular passage of, of Luke's writings, and what I want to maybe point out as we do, um, you, you're, you've seen through the book of Acts where we were able to pick up on his writing style. You seen where I mean, this guy is an artist when it comes to writing. He would, when he would go through the book of Acts, he would pick up those high moments um, and he would fly over them. But those important moments where Jesus was, ha- or Jesus or Paul was having a, an encounter with someone, a conversation, so he would zoom down in and he would have detailed information like. Like every word that was said, every moment that they had. And, and so he was really good and, and creative in his writing. And we're going to see that again this morning. He paints this, this picture, this detailed picture, and it tells us a story. Like here's who Jesus is, here's what he's about, and here's our response to that. And that's what he did through the book of Acts, and it was just beautiful. And we're going to see that this morning, um, this moment in Jesus' life. Uh, where it's just meant really for us to be reminded. And that's what I wanted to do for us this morning, just to take this moment where we can get so focused on the fact that we're going through the book of Acts, right? We're going to finish that book, but the reality is what I want every one of us to see is Jesus. I want want us to see and experience Jesus, be reminded who he is and and what he's about. And so if you want to pick up with me, I'm going to to just kind of go verse by verse. I'm going to stop at each verse, and and we're going to try to just work work through this thing together. But in verse 36 of chapter 7, um, we have this, this moment where, where Luke captures uh, for us in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And when he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place... Uh, he and he went into the Pharisees' house and took his place. Now the the, the Pharisees, for just to catch you guys up, a Pharisee is, is this uh, powerful the, these powerful group, group of people. Um, re- literally, their, their their name it, it means like to uh, almost set apart or other. Uh, basically, kind of carved out of the rest of society, they're kind of an, an elite group of people in the community, and their role was to to. Uh, they, they were to preserve like all moral and religious life for their community. That was their role. So they had a really important role in the community. Uh, they were the, the elite religious leaders in the community. Um, and Luke doesn't really come out and, and tell us the motives for this Pharisee inviting Jesus into his home. Uh, but when we get through the story, you're going to be able to see pretty quick what his what his motives were, we'll see just a little bit later, it comes, becomes very, very obvious um, that he didn't invite Jesus into his home because he felt a great need for a Savior. It's not why he wanted Jesus. He wasn't just impressed by what Jesus is and his message and what he's, who he said he was and say, well, come to my house because I'm in need of, of what you got. That's not his motives for inviting Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Jesus would come over, uh, this Pharisee's treatment of him, it's rude. It's discourteous, and you'll see this when we walk through the text. By the standards of that day, it was offensive the way he treated Jesus when when Jesus came to to his house. It was customary in those days when when an honored guest would come into your home that you would pour a small amount of ointment oil on their head just to kind of show respect and honor for, for that guest. But Simon the Pharisee here brings him no oil. And it was customary... Uh, for a man to kiss another man on the cheek as a, way to, as a way to greet him when they would enter his home. And this was just kind of a sign of, of, of close friendship. And this is, this is true in many cultures even today, where men will kiss one another to kind of show friendship and honor, like we're connected to one another, we're we respectful toward one another, and we're in relationship with one another. And the text is going to go on to say that Simon brought him no kiss, didn't greet him that way. And the Jews in those days... Would travel around mostly by foot, they uh, had open toed sandals at best, uh, what they would travel with, and so the roads um, were like Louisiana, and so their feet would get pretty nasty when they would try to travel along these roadways. They' probably had better roads in Louisiana, um, but but nonetheless, they were um, substandard and And so for someone to travel around in that time, their feet would get really nasty. Their feet would get really dirty when they would walk around. And so it was customary when you'd go into someone's home that you would remove your sandals. And usually what they would have is a a, a bowl of water. They would bring a a cistern out for you to kind of clean your feet, to wash your feet whenever you would come in. And it was was just a a sign of respect, a, a decency to provide someone water so you can clean your feet when you come in the house. And Simon offers Jesus no water for his feet. You see already, just, the, just his um, lack of treatment toward Jesus has already shown a lot of disrespect, a lot of dishonor. Simon denies Jesus the respect, the love, and even the common courtesies that would be offered in a home like his. And so by his lack of doing all these things, Simon is making a huge statement. He's speaking very clearly without so many words. Jesus, I find it worthy to invite you into my home to maybe interrogate you or to evaluate, me, or evaluate you, but let me be very, very clear. You have no authority over me. I'm not treating you as a person of, of respect, and I'm not giving you the honor as one who has authority over me. You're here, and I'm putting you on blast. I want, I want to know who you're about. I want to know what your message is. I want to evaluate to see if, if who you are is legit. And in verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Behold, a woman shows up, who in every way is Simon's opposite. In every sense of the word, opposite of this Pharisee. She shows up. And Luke describes that arrival by saying, Behold, a woman of the city, a sinner. And he throws that, that behold in there to say, Hey, the scene just changed. Things just got a little bit different. What's going on right now, what's going down is not ordinary. And that's why he throws that in there to catch our attention, to grab and say, Hey, look at this. Something just changed. And what's out of the ordinary is not that... She's showing up as an uninvited guest. That's not out of the ordinary in this, in this text. It's not that she just broke into the house and crashed a dinner party. Twice the text would say that they were reclining at table. And um, this, this would tip us off to, to something of, of a special meal that was going on. That, 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 they would be, that they would be reclining um, at table at special banquets or at special meals that you would have in your home or in a, in a certain place. Uh, you would lay out a table, a banquet table, and it would be about knee high, kind of like a coffee table. And that's what would be set up in this home. That's what Simon would have set up uh, for this moment, for this time. He would invite a guest in of honor to, to come and have a meal with him. And, and when the guests would, would, would recline at table, like he was saying, what was happening was they would have a pillow, they would have pillows around the table, and they would just lean in on one arm while they, while they faced one another closely with their feet lay, laying out opposite of them, away from them. And that's, that's kind of the picture, so I to, want you to see kind of how this moment is set up in the Pharisee's house, that they're there and they're having discussion uh, and they're reclining at table in that manner. And this woman would walk in this way. And this is not uncommon for teachers and rabbis and Pharisees to do. This is not uncommon for, for guest teachers who would come in from out of town to be, to be hosted this way. This was, this was kind of a moment of excitement uh, for, for the neighborhood, for that community. Um, it would draw a crowd. The, the teacher, our teacher of our community has invited the guest teacher to come over to his house. And so it was, it was meant to be kind of an, an open forum where they would just kind of get to come in and come listen to the conversation that was going on. It was going to be a, a really good moment. It had educational value to it. You can hear what one another said to one, you know, as they evaluated one another and asked questions and pondered different things. But it was also a, a kind of, an, it had some entertainment value to it. This was the time where when TV wasn't readily accepted Accessible. this was must-see tv right this was what you did you came to this is the guest guy is coming to this house they're going to have this formal conversation where they're going to be kind of sharing a meal together and we get to just kind of show up our guy is about to sit with this guy in this unscripted moment right the, kind of like if you today for if those of you who've ever gone to like a conference of any sorts where they do like a panel where questions are asked and they're just kind of it's this unscripted moment where you just kind of want to really hear uh, what their thoughts are and you know how they think and so the host would would leave the doors open leave the windows open to his home as he would host this banquet um, and people could come sit in on the floors along the walls. They can sit up on the window ledges and listen. I don't know if you remember when we went through the story of Acts. There was this one cat who was sitting on the window ledge, and Paul was preaching all night long. And Luke said, "Dude would not stop preaching. Homeboy fell, fell out of the window, fell asleep, fell out of the window, and died. Paul had to sh- like pause the sermon, go downstairs three flights, wake the guy back up from the dead." and go back up and finish his message till daylight, right? So that was kind of the same setting where this guy's sitting on the window ledge. They're listening to this conversation. They're listening to this moment. And so this is the setting of the drama, of the narrative that you you see here when Luke says, Behold. Like this was the setting that this woman walked into. This was going on. People from around the community, people who are, are important, even some of the most important elite people in their community. And so what's what's dramatic about it is not the fact that this woman just walks into this setting, right? That was very normal. Many people just kind of walked in and out during this this meal. It's what kind of woman walked into that setting. That's that's what's dramatic about it. That's why Luke says, Behold, a woman of the city, a sinner, walks in the door. What is a person like you doing in a place like this? That's what he's trying to say. How many times did I feel the sting of that? Prior to me meeting Jesus, walking into a place, what is a person like me doing in a place like this? This is a joke. This is the last place on earth someone should find me. And I felt the sting of that. Behold, a sinner arrives at church. And that was what it was like before I met Jesus. I have this sneaky suspicion that I'm not the only one who's had this feeling before. I have this sneaky suspicion that many in this room have probably at one time or another had this feeling where you walked into the door and it's like, what am I doing here? Like if these people knew my story, if these people knew what I did just this past week, they would, they would use a fire hose and run me out of this place. This is, this is insane. It's that feeling of incompatibility, right? It's that feeling of me in church. Those ideas don't really fit together. And, if, and it, it, if this is you, like if this is where you are this morning, because of maybe something you said or something you did or something you thought maybe even this week or just in, in the past, um, I am so thankful you're here. You are welcome here. There's space for people like me and you here. There should be. And that's, what, that's the kind of culture that Jesus creates. He doesn't create this culture where some can come through the door and some can't, depending on your attitude, depending on what you say, depending on your lifestyle, depending on you know, what you believe or don't believe. We see that in this story. Jesus is creating that space. In God's mysterious way, he's made a way for every one of us. None of us fit. That's the the deal. Apart from Jesus, none of us fit in this space, and yet in God's mysterious way, he has invited us to come and sit at the table with him through Jesus. He's done that for us. And so behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And our natural response is, especially as Christians, is what you do, right? Give me the dirt. What'd she do? What makes her a sinner? What makes her a woman of the city? And Luke doesn't say. He doesn't say. But I will say this. The idea is that she has a bad reputation Woman walks into the room. Behold, a woman of the city, a sinner. She has a reputation. She's known. Um, and to describe someone like that, the way Luke does in this passage right here, uh, it, it usually had a sexual connotation. And so many commentators would believe this woman might have been a prostitute, um, one, one who would uh, uh, engage in, in uh, promiscu- promiscuity. Um, and that's, that's what they assume. Um, but it could have been that she wasn't you know, engaging in sex for money or anything like that. She just could have been a party girl. You know, just could have been that, you know. But nonetheless, um, whatever it is, the point is that she has a past, and it's not a secret. That's the point. That's the point Luke's trying to make. Here's a woman who everybody knows about her. Everybody knows all the junk on her, and she walks in the room. That's, That's the point. Everybody knows her, and they judge her for it. That's that sinner. And when she goes into the public square, when she goes into the marketplace, it's this constant reminder of her shame when she is looked on by others with condemnation. This is her life. This is how things go for her. She walks into that space. She walks into the public square. People look on her with condemnation. This sinful woman. And at some point, we don't know when, um, she hears about Jesus. And it could have been just if you, if you read the chapter in its entirety, Luke chapter 7, it could have been um, m- moments ago earlier in the text um, where Jesus is talking about the love of God and he refers to John the Baptist and he was talking about that one who, who uh, was telling all of us uh, that we're broken and that we're messed up and that we're not okay and that our sin has separated us from God and that we need to, be, uh, we need to repent and turn, that we're distant from God and, and we, need to, we need to draw near to God through repentance. like That was the message that John the Baptist had to say to, to all of the world. And, and Jesus referred to that moment just moments ago when he was talking about how much God loves. He was in the public square and so it could have been there. And for some of us, and probably for her, she didn't need to be convinced of her distance from God. Some people do. Some people think they, they're close to God, and others know the distance, very aware of the distance between them and God. And this is her situation here. And we're, we're, we're able to suppress these realities. We, we do it with entertainment, and we do it with distractions, and we do it with a bunch of a noise. But, but the reality is, for those of us who... who aren't willing to admit it. When we get in that quiet place, without Jesus, we feel that distance from God. Like it's, it's just real for us who don't follow Jesus. And she hits that moment where she knows she's not okay. We've all got to get to this moment, right, where we're not okay. I've, I've filled my life with distractions. I've filled my life with, with entertainment and noise and, and everything else to try to hide the idea, to hide the fact that I'm not okay. We've all done this. And you've got to get to that point. And she had to get to that point where she was just not okay. And she hears about Jesus speaking about this opportunity to come near to God. This invitation to come to God and the thought that God might actually want someone just like her the thought that God might actually want someone just like you. She hears this message of hope, right? And she musters up all the courage she can muster to walk down that street, to walk in front of that house with all of those people. She steps into that house and she's holding a little bottle of perfume, right? Best thing she's got. And she's bringing that. And this is where Luke's going to slow the narrative down. This is is his creative writing where he he slows things down a bit to give us to draw in the crosshairs and get on the detail in verse 38. Standing behind him, she walks into this room. Behold this woman of the city, a sinner, whom everybody knows that she's got a lot of baggage, that she's the last person in that place, the last person who, who needs to be in that place. And she walks in and standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Remember how they're laying at the banquet table, feet opposite of the table, and she's at the end of Jesus' feet, and this is likely the very first time that she's been this close to Jesus, to see the details of Jesus' face, to see his eyes, to see the wrinkles in his skin, to see his hair, to get that close to Jesus. Now, I don't know if she had something to say, some speech prepared that she was going to, okay, Jesus, I heard you say all of these things, and here's who, like, I don't know if she had all that, but when she arrived, when she locked eyes with Jesus, she had nothing to say. She was speechless. Matter of fact, the entire passage, she's speechless. She never says a word. And Luke says she leads out with weeping. And he uses a word, uh, called, it's, it's breco, which means to rain down. So her eyes aren't just welled up with tears a little bit. Luke would describe her weeping as raining down, weeping, crying. Her weeping is described as, as raining down when she locks on his eyes and those dirty feet. That's her response. And then she does something that would have been extremely immodest. Extremely inappropriate in that setting. She would unbind and let down her hair. That's a pivotal moment. Hair that Paul would call in in, in 1 Corinthians a woman's glory. And, and, And the idea is that you would not unbind your hair for anyone ever except for your husband on your wedding night. That was the thing that the husband looked forward to the most is to see this woman in all her beauty just to let her hair down. And that was what was so special about this moment is that that was the person you would unbind your your glory for to show you the, the best of who you are. You would say that for your husband on your wedding night and the most precious, beautiful thing for her, the best of herself she has to offer, she's now using it as a rag on Jesus' feet. That's how worthy he is. And she knows that, and she feels that, and she begins kissing his feet. And Luke describes it as, as kissing with affection, kataphileo. It's the same kiss that, that he would describe later in Luke chapter 15, where, where the father's son returns home from, from just living a licentious life. And, and, and it, this, we call the story the prodigal son. Uh, and, and when he returns home, he kisses him kataphileo. It's a kiss of affection, a, a kiss of love. And pouring out this perfume on his feet, perfume that would once be used to attract men, is now being poured out on the feet of Jesus. She's a living picture of Romans chapter 6. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. She's a picture of Romans chapter 6. She takes her body, which was once given away, so many times in so many fruitless places, so many harmful places, taking all that she has and laying it at the feet of Jesus. It is, is it an imperfect gift? Yes. Extremely imperfect. And Jesus gladly accepts it and the whole room is filled with the sweetness of this fragrance. Everyone there can smell. In verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus saw this. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman that is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This Pharisee quickly reaches a verdict on Jesus. He, he quickly makes a call on Jesus. He brought Jesus here to evaluate him, right? He brought him here to see if he really is what everyone is hyping him up to be. And in this moment he he gets his answer. If he was a prophet, which he clearly isn't, he would know what sort of woman this is, which is dirty, sinful. And he wouldn't let her do what she's doing, touching him. And and Luke describes it in a way, continues to touch him. Like not just but continues to touch him. If Jesus is who He says He is, which He can't be because of this what's going on, He would know what kind of woman that is and He would shut that down. He's not only offended by this woman. He's offended by Jesus that He would sit there and let her continue to to touch Him. This dirty, sinful woman. And then the irony begins to kind of crush through the door, right? Just comes crashing on in. Notice that the Pharisee said to himself, he didn't ask out loud. He, he had a thought. Hmm, this Jesus guy must not be who he's all cracked up to. He's not a prophet. Everybody's been kind of blowing that horn. He's a prophet. This prophet's come to town. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, displaying the very prophetic ability that this Pharisee said he lacked. He answered his thought said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. It's the whole point I brought you here. I want to hear what you have to say. Say it. And then Jesus tells a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? It's a simple story. Two debtors. One owes ten times more than the other person. Both of them unable to pay, helpless, both in need of grace, and both graciously forgiven of their debt. An act that is totally out of character for a money lender. Like this is the whole point of a money lender's role, is to make sure that you lend money and you collect money back with interest. That's how they did their business, it would be like the financial aid office at McNeese calling you and saying, ah, you could just keep it. Don't worry about it. I said, somebody like, whoo, man, I'm waiting for that call. You know? It'd be like the person, the the bank or the finance department that you borrowed money to buy your car, they just call and say, look, we don't need that anymore. You, You did enough. Like, that's not normal expectation. We're not waiting for that phone call. Because that's not what happens. That's not normal. And Jesus would tell this story of radical forgiveness and then a a simple question to a simple story. Who do you think will love him more? And then Jesus would go down the list of courtesies that Simon the Pharisee neglected that were met and surpassed by this woman. He turned to the woman and he said to Simon, You see this woman? See this mess at my feet right here? You see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, Are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus says, Yeah, I know exactly what kind of woman this is that's touching me, Simon. I know exactly what she's done. And guess what? You could learn a few things from her, Simon the Pharisee. You can learn some things from the sinful, broken woman. I know exactly who she is. And the message that Jesus has for him is that Simon's heart was cold towards him. Your heart is cold toward me, Simon, because you don't think you're that bad. You don't think you're as busted up as she is. And so your heart, it's it's cold to me. But this woman who who felt the weight and the seriousness of her sin, she now knows the value of a Savior. She's she's arrived at that place where she knows she's in need, and therefore her sins, which are many, are are forgiven for she loved much. And I want to clarify something here. What Jesus is not saying is that this woman is forgiven because she loved. That's not what he's saying. It, it, it seems like it would read that way, but if we read it that way, we would miss the point of the parable, and we would miss all of New Testament theology if we read it that way. That's not what he's saying there. The parable is that someone had a debt that was graciously forgiven, and the result of that forgiveness is love. That's what he's trying to say here. Love is the response to forgiveness. It is not the prompting of forgiveness. So I don't want you guys to walk away saying, well, if I love God a lot, he'll love me back a lot and he'll forgive me a lot. And if I don't love God a lot, then he won't forgive me and won't love me back like that. That undoes all of New Testament theology. Thank God that his love for us is not contingent on our love for him. We don't even know what love is without God showing us love. And that's what Scripture says. It, love is displayed proof of your forgiveness. You want to know how you're forgiven? You love much, and that's what he's trying to say here. Love always produces action, and so you don't get to just walk around saying, "Oh man, I just love God and I love my neighbor, and it just it's just I'm, I love I love you guys." Love cannot sit still. Love always produces action. It always expresses itself with action. And In this woman's case and in our case, love becomes this courageous, humble service. That's where where it's at. That's how she responds. And that should be the response of all of us. Is that, God, He loves me so much. I'll do anything for Him. I'll do anything for Him because He loves me much. And when Jesus sees this, He pronounces assurance. As He does here. You are are forgiven. Simon, this woman is forgiven. He doesn't offer forgiveness for what she's done. He's not saying, she's washed my feet. She's done some pretty extravagant things here. Some things a little out of the ordinary. I think I'll love her. That's not how he's doing it. He's he's assuring her that, that she has forgiveness because he sees the fruit of it. He sees this response. And he assures her that you are forgiven. Therefore, her sins... Which are many are forgiven. Now, why throw that in there? Her sins, guys, everybody listening around, windows, floor, Simon, the Pharisee, important people, people at the table, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. I think he does that for two reasons. I think one reason he does it, he's, he wants to subtly tip off to everyone that he actually does have some prophetic gifts tucked away back there and that he knows exactly what's going on. He realizes who this woman is. So everybody in the room, if you think that Simon's got me in a corner, if you think that he's proven that I'm not a prophet, I'm not who, who everyone says I am, I'm not who I'm saying I am, I know exactly who she is. Her sins are many. I, I agree with every one of you. What she does is just completely abhorrent. He's not doing this out of ignorance, and that's his whole point, right? He's not doing this like, woman, you are forgiven. And then one of the disciples say, yeah, but Jesus, um, listen, man, she's this and this and this. And then Jesus is like, oh, man, this is going to be an awkward moment. I'm going to just kind of retract that forgiveness now that I know. Like, he's not doing this out of ignorance. He knows exactly what this woman has done, and he... And the other uh, reason I feel like Luke would throw that in there, that Jesus would say that, which are many, is he wants her and he wants everyone else to know, he wants you and me to know, that he sees all of the brokenness of this woman. He sees all of her brokenness. He knows exactly who she is. And he does not approve of it. He's not just kind of looking off and saying, yeah, it's bad, but you know what? We love everybody, and it's cool, like, you know... Hopefully she'll do better. He's not approving of it. So I believe that's the two reasons why he, why he would say that. Why he would say, her sins, which are many. So he wants us to know this. He wants this woman to know this. He wants the people in that room to know this. That when he embraces sinners, he's not endorsing sin. When he loves us as sinners. He's not saying, oh, you just keep on doing what you're doing. I love you. I love you just like you are. It's not true. And Jesus affirms that here. Sin steals life. It's not freedom. It's enslavement. That's what sin does. And Jesus says that. And and he says, listen, this salvation is not just accepting who you are uh, and and we're going to make this work. It's me making you who you were meant to be. That's that's what salvation is. And now I want to address a different group of people in the room. Um, I actually believe there's probably most of you in this room you're probably thinking, well, this story might be a little bit irrelevant because you didn't live a crazy life. You might be thinking that this story is irrelevant to you because Jesus' parable, you know, it might be a little bit sad or confusing to you because he says, whoever has been forgiven much will love much, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And I know that there's this group of people uh, uh, who uh, would, would think that because you met Jesus when you were five years old and, and you've been growing in your faith ever since and you've, you've always been a part of the church and you've always known the gospel and you've always uh, worked really, really hard to, to work walk in your faith, that there's little to be forgiven of. Like, I don't have this crazy, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I don't have this crazy testimony where I can get up and like, yeah, man, I like killed a whole room full of people one time and y'all strung out on meth. And just, I don't have that kind of testimony of addiction and licentious living. I don't have much to say, but like I grew up knowing Jesus. I'm just basic. Jesus in this story is not putting a premium on sin here. The, the Pharisee is not someone who sinned less. Throughout his life, Jesus would make it very clear to the Pharisees that their judgmental hearts of other people, that's as dirty and offensive as everything that this woman did last week. everything. And so that it's not that the Pharisees needed to be forgiven little because they were so righteous and they just sinned just a little bit. It's that his perception of forgiveness is off. It's like he don't understand it and Jesus isn't dealing with the amount of sin here. He's dealing with the amount of sin realized. This perception that you have. And so if this is you, and this is how you understand this story, and this is how you understand your story, may I suggest that you could be minimizing the gravity of forgiveness for you. That you're minimizing the, the gravity of sin in your life. And what it takes for God to overcome and forgive that sin. Maybe, maybe you're minimizing that at some level. You don't think that what, you, what you've done or what you're doing is bad. Or is it bad enough? At some level, you're not experiencing what's happening with forgiveness and faith. When these two things intersect, that explodes with love that can't sit still. Instead, you would minimize, you would rationalize the things that you do, that that when no one's looking and no one's hearing me speak these things or act this way, you may be just minimizing or, or rationalizing those things. But you know what, Blake, he did that to me, or she said that to me, or Blake, you don't know what my family's like, man, you don't know where I come from. Like, I hear this all the time, people doing this. You spend so much energy hiding and blaming and excusing and deflecting rather than just owning the dark parts of your heart. Just being humbled by the fact that, man, there's some sad things in here. And the reality is that we are all sinners. We are all counted as debtors who are unable to pay. All of us in this room. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more more aware you become of just how deep the sickness runs. And that's what this woman's experiencing in, in this moment. In verse 48, he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. He pronounces forgiveness over this woman. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And they're not using like this exciting, happy tone. Oh, wow, who is that guy? That's not the way you read that. The way you read that is, who does this guy think he is? That he could Forgive sin. Hey, man, you can't say that, brother. That's not your place to say. You're, you're kind of assuming a place of God. And Jesus doesn't even respond to him. He just ignores it. In verse 50, he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How can she be so sure that she's forgiven? How can we be so sure that our debt is paid? Jesus is the payment. He is the payment. Not how much or how little you love. Not how good or how bad you are. Not how much or how little a good works you did last week or bad things that you did last week or what you thought. It's all contingent on Jesus. He is the payment. Just because the debtor has been forgiven by the one who he owes, it doesn't make the debt go away. So if, if you get the call that your financial aid is forgiven... First off, I I want you to call me. I want to know about that. Because I don't have a prophetic gift, but, you know, whatever. But the idea is that McNeese had to absorb that debt. Somebody had to pay the debt. It didn't make the debt go away. It just means that you don't have to pay it. Somebody does. How can Jesus say you're forgiven? Because he becomes the payment. He said, I'm paying it. I can pronounce forgiveness over this woman and over you, sinner, and over you, sinner, because I'm the one who's going to make the payment. I'm going, to, I'm going to pay the debt. And so the debt that you owe is going to be canceled because I'm going to pay it for you. And all the sad and the dark and the sinful things that this woman did, that I've done, that you do, this has incurred a, a serious debt. And Jesus is being very clear. Don't, we're not minimizing it. My sin which are many, all my sins, your sins, which are many, has incurred a serious debt and working to pay it off, trying to catch up, a little behind on the debt, and you're working to try to catch, if we all tried to get together and collectively do that, it would become even exponentially more offensive to the work of Jesus and would only sink us further into debt. And that's what Jesus has been trying to say the whole time. The fact that you even try to work it off, the fact that you even have the boldness and the pride to think that you can pay for it is offensive to him. He gave himself on the cross for that payment. And for you to say, oh, I think I'm just going to take a different route to my salvation is to dismiss, discount the work of Jesus on the cross. He says, this is the only way. This is the only way it can be paid. Freedom is found in believing that in Christ we are forgiven. Not in anything that we do. Not in anything that we believe or anything that we know, but in Christ, in what He has accomplished, we can be forgiven. And this forgiveness is found on faith. It's found on faith. It's not based on works. And this faith will lead to an unstoppable love that will always, always, always produce fruit. It will always produce fruit. How do you know if you're saved? How does this woman know that she's saved? Because this guy said so? She believed. She believed that Jesus was who he said he was. All of her faith, everything she was, was submitted to him, was given to him, and says, you're worth more than any of that. And I, I, c- I can see it, and I believe it. And she believes that's how she knows that she's saved. And so how do you know you're saved? Do you believe? How do you know if your belief is actually Authentic? it will always always result in love that produces fruit it always will and so maybe this time for many of you is just to really evaluate how we're doing in that department how do we how how well are we loving what kind of fruit's being produced in my life because i say i believe in jesus that my faith is founded in the work that jesus has paid for me or do we just say we believe I want to tell you something, there's, there have been millions and millions and millions of false conversions because somebody told you that all you have to do is just say you believe and it's done. And I'm here to tell you that you believe. I'm just say you believe, but you believe and how are we going to know you believe? How are you going to know that you believe? How well are you loving others? How well are you loving your family? How, how did it go this past Thanksgiving holiday where it's usually pretty difficult to love family, love friends? Is it producing fruit? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of this beautiful, precious Savior, Jesus Christ, who has... Um, has counted himself as nothing so that we might be counted among those who would be saved. Father, what an ultimate display of humility. What an ultimate display of sacrifice that you would send your son Christ who was willing to come and lay down his life for us that we might be saved. We who are sinful people, we who have many, many, many sins in our lives, past and even in our present Father I thank you that this story this this moment in history where Luke has captured this interaction between the religious righteous guy and the broken sinful woman and how he deals with both Lord I'm thankful That you've canceled the debt that I was completely unable to pay. I am so very thankful that for so many in this room you have canceled the debt. Father, I thank you for the reminder that the debt just doesn't disappear when it's canceled. But that, that the debt that was owed was poured out in judgment on the cross. So we look to Jesus. We look at Him there on the cross. God, I would pray that You would humble us under that, under that picture. For those of us in this room who find ourselves in the seat of a Pharisee who thinks that we're just, we're just in this rhythm of Christian life that we've been in since we were a small child, Father, I pray right now that that it's very obvious that sin is not to be minimized. That apart from Jesus Christ, we are all hopeless and in need. And the debt's the same for every one of us. It's an eternal separation from you in utter darkness and so, Father, I pray today that your glory and your beauty become so much more to us this morning than any foolishness that we're involved in right now, any foolishness that we're giving ourselves over to right now. Would you do that in this room? Would you, would you send your spirit in a way that is convincing and convicting And through your kindness, Lord, would you lead us to repentance? And let this moment be a moment for us to, to look on this sinful woman and know that there are so many like her, so many like us, who just need to meet you, Jesus. And needs to hear this story of forgiveness. And would we we'll be found faithful to, to carry that message, to live that message, to pray, to demonstrate and declare the good news that a debt that we are smothered under has been paid in Christ. And we can live in freedom and we can come out of enslavement and out of bondage. I ask this this morning with the assured hope in the resurrection that, Father, you're going to do exactly what you plan to do. I thank you that you've invited us to be a part of this. Let it give us humble courage to serve you in supernatural ways, using our gifts in all sorts of ways that would bring about glory for you and in your name. In our everyday humdrum, run-of-the-mill day that we have all the way to those, Father, who you are flinging to the far ends of this earth with the good news of the gospel. Empower us and equip us to go when we leave this place to demonstrate the good news and to declare the good news that Jesus is alive and that he has paid the debt. We ask these things in his name. Amen.